0: Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, invites you to Be the Informed Patient with the podcast that features experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Many people who have undergone a colonoscopy say the preparation for the test, which screens for colon cancer, was worse by far than the test itself. But there are new methods available today that may make a dreaded task more bearable. Here to tell us about them is Dr. Christina Goh. She's an assistant professor of surgery at Upstate specializing in colon and rectal surgery. Welcome back to the Informed Patient, Dr.
1: Goh. Hi, nice to be here today. I understand that
0: in order to visualize the colon through the camera that you use, doctors need the colon to be empty and clean. But why is it such an onerous task to clean out the colon?
1: When we're doing a colonoscopy, I really want to look at the inner lining of the colon called the mucosa. And so in order for a patient to have a clean colon, they literally need to flush out any kind of solid and liquid waste so that we can see the clean inside area. From the time we ingest food, how long does it take to make its
0: way through the gastrointestinal tract?
1: The short answer is that it depends both on the individual and sometimes it can even be variable within the same person. So on average, we say in a non-constipated patient that Transit time solely through the colon can take about 30 to 40 hours, and even going to 72 to 100 hours can still be considered normal in a patient, depending on any associated symptoms they might have. Now, when I say that it can be variable in the same patient, that can be based on how much physical activity they've had in the day, what kind of foods they've had during the course of the day, whether it be more processed foods or more fluid and more full grains. And from patient to patient, it can also be dependent on any kind of medicines or underlying medical conditions they might have.
0: Do fluids in general move more quickly through the system? They do, they do. Well, I'd like to ask you about the colonoscopy before we get into the details of prepping. So you're looking at the lining and you're
1: looking for polyps. Can you explain to us what polyps are and what they look like? Sure. When I have a patient in my office asking about colonoscopies or other colorectal cancer screenings, when we talk about polyps, really they're clumps of abnormal cells on that mucosal lining of the colon that I was talking to you about. So in a normal colon, the inside lining is nice and smooth, and you can see the underlying blood vessels, and it can even look pretty shiny during a colonoscopy. When I see a polyp, they usually look like little bumps, or they can almost look like little mushrooms whenever we're doing the scope. So what I tell patients are polyps are abnormal clumps of cells. They can either have the potential to grow into a cancer, which is why we get very excited about doing colonoscopies to prevent them from turning into cancer. But then on the other hand, you have some polyps that never turn into a cancer, and we still won't understand that until we remove it from a patient's colon. So every polyp has to come out? Generally speaking, I wouldn't say that every polyp has to come out, but experience and expertise can let us know which polyps look more suspicious. That's generally based on what kind of size it is and what the appearance is. Are there other things that you might discover during a colonoscopy? Yeah. So I have patients who undergo colonoscopies, not just for colon and mental cancer screening or polyp removal. Sometimes they might have diarrhea that isn't explained for other reasons. And we're trying to find that out. I can also see small outpouchings in the colon called diverticula, which could be a whole other talk. In and of itself, I have patients who have inflammation of the colon that we don't really know why, and they might have an underlying condition called inflammatory bowel disease, either in the form of ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease.
0: Now, during this procedure, the patient's anesthetized to some degree. Is that right?
1: That's right. Generally speaking, most patients either undergo something called moderate sedation, where they get certain types of medications. So they're really just mildly still awake and aware of what's going on. They can also undergo something called monitored anesthesia care, where an anesthesia team is still providing them with a special type of medicine called propofol. But it does require some additional expert care during that time. And depending on the patient and maybe their underlying medical conditions, some patients actually need general anesthesia for their colonoscopy.
0: Now, what are the current recommendations for who needs
1: colonoscopies and how often? That's a really interesting source of conversation right now. Currently, in the United States, we have several different medical societies that recommend that an average risk patient get colon cancer screening starting at the age of 45. Now, in the setting of colonoscopies, if no abnormalities are seen, that doesn't need to be repeated for up to 10 years. And those societies include the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, the American College of Gastroenterology, as well as the American Society of Colon and Rectal Surgeons.
0: And what makes somebody average risk, or how would I know whether my risk is average or not?
1: When I'm talking to my patients, certain questions I ask include do you have a family history? So do any of your biologic relatives have a family history of colon or rectal cancer or any kind of large polyp burden? I also ask the patient if they've had any personal history of polyps from their previous colonoscopies or if they've had a history of colon or rectal cancer. And then going back to what we talked about before, if they have a history of inflammatory bowel disease, ulcerative colitis or Crohn's, that also changes what kind of risk factors I I think about. This is Upstate's The Informed Patient podcast with our guest, Dr. Christina
0: Goh. She's a surgeon at Upstate who specializes in surgery of the colon and rectum, and we've been talking about colonoscopies. So let's talk about the prepping for the colonoscopy. Do I understand correctly that people used to clean out their colons over several days using laxatives such as castor oil or
1: magnesium citrate before they could have this test? That's certainly true. And sometimes that's still true to this day, depending on what kind of prep uh, quality. A patient has had in the past. We don't use castor oil as one of the FDA-approved medications. Magnesium citrate is still a laxative that is often used not necessarily for bowel prep, but for other sources in the colon and rectal world.
0: Have most patients had to drink a special beverage that is not known to taste very good to clean out the colon the day before? Is that
1: typically how it's done? The most common bowel prep you might hear it called Go Lightly. It's a polyethylene glycol based solution, and the most common one is a four liter prep that you start drinking usually the day before and often the morning of your colonoscopy. And then, why is drinking
0: a bunch of water along with that part of the prep?
1: There's a couple of reasons for that, even if you're taking a lower volume prep. Number one, the whole purpose of a bowel prep is to completely clean out your colon in no euphemistic terms, is really just having a lot of severe diarrhea for the day before while you're drinking your prep. So drinking water or fluids keeps you hydrated and can also decrease the symptoms of nausea that can be associated with this type of prep.
0: The FDA approved a pill called Sutab last year. Is that an option for patients who can't stomach the taste of the go lightly?
1: It is definitely something that is available and that I often prescribe to my patients. A lot of the times when you are thinking about a bowel prep, or when I'm thinking about bowel prep, I think about a couple of things. Number one, is it something that a patient can tolerate? Number two, what is the side effect profile on these preps? Is it safe for all of my patient population are only certain patient populations. And then lastly, but I think is still important is really the cost of any kind of prep that I'm prescribing to a patient. So SUTAB is certainly very effective bowel prep and that's been shown in certain mm. studies, but it can be cost prohibitive if your insurance doesn't cover it. And so that's also something that we take into account when prescribing these things.
0: So, how does the pill work? Does it do the same thing that the Go lightly does and is it as effective?
1: It's definitely just as effective and it has a similar what we call mechanism of action as the Go lightly. So, both Go lightly and SuTab are what we call osmotic laxatives. So, what that really means is that it works by causing water to stay within the colon and be retained in the stool. And so, if you have a lot of fluid in there, you're really giving yourself diarrhea. But for the purposes of cleaning out a colon, it's very effective. What is your preferred method? I generally have patients do a lower volume source, similar to Go Lightly. I use something called Miralax, it's a flavorless powder. And I ask my patients to dilute it in any kind of Gatorade or clear liquid of their choice, so long as it lacks any red or purple food coloring. And then I ask them to basically drink that for about every 15 minutes until 64 ounces of it is gone. The other part of that prep is that a patient needs to drink clear liquids, as in nothing that is opaque, nothing with any kind of solid components to it for the entire day before the day of their colonoscopy.
0: You mentioned the red and the purple. Why do you have to avoid those before the colonoscopy?
1: That can definitely change how the mucosa looks. The inside lining of our colon is a pink color, so that can have the potential of distorting what I see on the colonoscopy.
0: Other than the bowel prep itself, how do you tell patients to prepare for their exam? Is there any other advice you have?
1: Yeah, so in terms of trying to tolerate this amount of liquid that you're having to drink, I give patients some pointers. Some of them work better than others. So placing your prep on ice or drinking it through a straw can sometimes decrease how unpalatable the flavor of the prep is. Sucking on lemon slices or sugar-free menthol candy drops can also decrease that feeling of nausea. And while the instructions on the container of a large volume prep might say that you need to drink basically a glass every 15 minutes until you're done that can make patients feel pretty bloated or nauseous so what I counsel them is if you're starting to feel a little bit full or unwell it's certainly okay to space out how quickly you're drinking all of that prep is there anything different that people need to do if they're chronically constipated Sometimes I recommend that they drink clear liquids for more than just the 24 hours. If a patient has told me that they have chronic constipation or if they've had a poor prep in the past, that might change either the type of prep that I give them, or unfortunately I might recommend that they do a two-day instead of a one-day prep. All the better to just get it done and have a good colonoscopy versus being told you have to do it all over again within three to six weeks or so. Do you have any dietary advice for the week leading
0: up to the colonoscopy? Is there anything that people should eat or should avoid?
1: I do tell them, even though it hasn't been really backed up by the literature, that they really should avoid any kind of high-fiber, high-residue diets. So exactly the opposite of advice I tell patients in terms of their colon health, I tell them to follow during a colonoscopy prep. So trying to avoid those great leafy green vegetables, And maybe the Metamucil or other types of fiber supplementation that I generally tell patients to take, I tell them to avoid in the week preceding their colonoscopy.
0: That's interesting. So after the colonoscopy, you go back to the healthier high fiber diet, but to prep for it, that's the opposite. Exactly. (laughs) Well, before we wrap up, can you tell us about colonoscopy alternatives? Are stool-based
1: tests a reliable way to catch colorectal cancer early? Certainly, we have a couple of stool-based studies, and what I tell patients when they're exploring non-colonoscopic avenues for colorectal cancer screening is, well, they're certainly an alternative, but if any of these are positive, you still need to get a colonoscopy. So let me preface by saying that. In terms of the stool-based tests out there, several fall in the category of just looking for blood in your GI tract. And so if they're not particularly specific, they might let us know that you have an underlying colon cancer. One of the newer tests looks at the DNA in the stools called Cologuard. you might've heard of it on commercials. And that actually has a pretty good accuracy in letting us know if there's any underlying colon cancer. However, it's not as good at allowing us to know whether or not you have polyps in your colon. And again, if any of these are positive, you still need to follow up with a colonoscopy. What about virtual colonoscopies? Would that be an option for everybody? It is an option. Sometimes virtual colonoscopies are also called uh, CT colonographies. So if you hear that term, it's basically the same thing. What I tell patients who are considering a virtual colonoscopy, I have prescribed them to some of my patients. Sometimes if they have a difficult colon to navigate, as an example, but... Remember in a virtual colonoscopy that you still need to drink an adequate bowel prep to clean out your colon. And then what happens is that whoever is doing the CT scan has to basically place a tube up your bottom and puff some air into it to basically inflate your entire colon. And the patient is asked to move in several positions while a CAT scan is occurring. So it's not as pain-free or as lacking in being inconvenient or uncomfortable as patients might think. The other part, again, is the same as the stool-based studies, is if we see something concerning, you're still going to need a colonoscopy to be scheduled. Well, Dr. Go, this has been very informative, and I appreciate you making time for this interview. Oh, thank you very much. It's been a great chat.
0: My guest has been Dr. Christina Goh. She's an assistant professor of surgery at Upstate, specializing in colon and rectal surgery. The Informed Patient is a podcast covering health, science, and medicine, brought to you by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, and produced by Jim Howe. Find our archive of previous episodes at upstate.edu informed. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.